This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. We're days away from beginning a new decade. Well, to analyse 2019 and to pick out the key themes of the year ahead, I'm joined by Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. Simon French, Chief Economist at Panmure Gordon, and Economist Francis Coppola. Welcome all. Been a very difficult year for a profession like yours, in other words, trying to interpret, as you've obviously done very well over the year, but there was a certain kind of inertia, wasn't there really, Simon, about, first of all, about Brexit and the rest of it, it, it time wasted. You, you mentioned this when we first spoke about the referendum all those, well, was it three years ago? Three and a half years ago, yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the defining features, really, of the last three and a half years has been how business investment has underperformed its long-term trend in the UK economy. That allied to a, a really poor uh, improvement or lack of improvement in the UK's balance of payments on, on trade means that the UK has probably forfeited over that period between 2 and 3% of GDP. And therefore, the question heading into 2020 is how much recent political events will lead to a catch-up, some latent demand, or whether some of that demand and maybe the majority of that demand has been lost forever. Francis, so the, the, the population, I would imagine, and again, we've talked about this before, got thoroughly fed up of the ins and outs of the Westminster bubble. Yes, totally. There was the amount of Brexit fatigue there's mm. been is quite extraordinary. Um, and, and I think, actually, that's one of the things that helped the Conservative Party to win the election was this kind of desire to, for goodness sake, can we just get this thing over with and get on with our lives? Um, the fact that people... That, those in the know kept saying, well, actually, it's not that simple, kind of kind of got lost in the noise, I think. Did you, were you convinced by that argument that it wasn't that simple? Because it seemed to me that what was happening, again, not within the bubble at all, that it was about procedural stuff and so on, rather than the common sense of, right, the, pe- the people have decided we're going to do this. That didn't seem to be at the fore at all. Well, I think the, there was a sense of we, we have to go through with this. Um, yeah. So in that sense, yes, the um, actually leaving the EU is is a milestone that we now know will happen. Um, so in that sense, you could say the get Brexit done is is real. But the economic consequences are very much with us for a long time to come. And we still have a trade deal to negotiate. We do indeed. Well, we'll come on to that. Craig, you obviously have to answer numerous phone calls every day from people who say, what is going on? Must have been a heck of a year for you, I would imagine. Yeah, there's only so, so many times you can say, I, I don't really know, to be honest. It's, um, and, I'm not well, sure honest. Many, and I'm not sure many people really in the loop uh, yeah. know what's going on. I mean, the greatest challenge this year, you've already alluded to, back in 2016, the UK voted to leave the EU. What they didn't vote on is how. Uh, and that is what, that is the problem that you have in Parliament. And the problem is when you, when you win a vote by 52 to 48 uh, and you have an election in 2015, you have another election in 2017, the chances are there is going to be that divide in how people vote and therefore the MPs who are put in Parliament, some of whom will still oppose it, some of whom will strongly support it. And then somewhere in the middle, everyone has their own idea on what Brexit actually means. So it's not really surprising in hindsight that this has been such a divisive issue and that it's taken so long. And ultimately, uh, as Francis just alluded to, it's actually taken fatigue to get it over the line. It's taken this idea of how many people who back Boris's deal back it because they think it's a good deal? And how many people back it because they're thinking, I can't take another another 12 months like we've just had? Well, that's a very good point to to, to pursue perhaps later on because we have a very limited time for a trade deal, for example. Let me just switch 
everybody's attention if I may to the oil price and what went on there because whatever one thinks about this and again we talk about it then we don't talk about it but it is fundamental to everybody's economy was there a shift in 2019 Greg um I, I, I don't know about a shift I mean I think it, it's really we've got to look at the last four years when we're talking about oil prices mm. to see where the real shift has come and the shift has actually uh, not necessarily come from the economy per se. There's been a lot more focus on the economy this year than there has probably been in the three years previous to that. The last, the, the, those previous three years, it was all about the supply side, and now it seems we're talking a lot more about demand than we have done for some time. But the real shift over the last four years has just come from the uh, the influence that OPEC has or doesn't have quite to the same extent anymore, and the growing influence that the US uh, private market does have, uh, and the the, the the quandary that that creates because we're, we're effectively now in a situation whereby OPEC and Russia's only response to anything is, well, we'll cut some more and cede more influence to the US because otherwise we just have to accept that oil prices are going to be perpetually low. Francis, is there a role for OPEC anymore? I know it's a real old chestnut this one, but, you know, years go on, don't they? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the sort of justifications for OPEC really has been uh, the US desire to prop up the dollar. Um, So uh, now the US has decided that actually it wants to control the energy price itself or uh, the oil price itself and be the world swing producer and have energy independence. The justification for maintaining OPEC is looking much thinner in my view. Mm. And Simon, again, we've touched on this many times before, haven't we? What's your view? Well, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that low oil prices for most consumers and certainly oil importing countries is de facto a tax cut. This is one of the reasons why we've seen a real dichotomy between the performance of consumers and the uh, business investment manufacturing side of the economy, which has been, the latter has been weak. The former has been strong, and I think in the third quarter of 2019, there was a real split amongst economists and equity strategists around the world as to who would win that tug of war between strong consumers and a weak manufacturing base. It looks like consumers have seen the world economy through a very tough patch, but that is no means certain. And part of the reason why they've done that is, of course, that oil prices have been low, energy prices have been low, broader spot commodity prices have been relatively low. I'd like to take you all to Boeing, if we may. Now, there's a reason for this. They are a huge manufacturing company. I suspect that next year, and again, we can talk about this later on, but there's going to be a lot of stories about how an enormous manufacturing company like this, which decides it has to shut down because of the tragedy of the 737 MAX crashes, affects the supply chain. Never mind the human misery of what happened, but let's just talk, if we may, Simon, about about what it actually means. This is big stuff, isn't it? Because the companies like Boeing are not very transparent about the deals that they have to go into with their suppliers. Yes, and there is a there is a risk, of course, given the scale of Boeing and more relevantly the scale of its supply chain, that this could be macro significant. I don't mean that in terms of pushing the US economy into recession. It's not no. that significant, but mm. certainly the margin, if you see, uh, particularly in areas where their supply chain is is a key part of the economy, will you see this wrapped up into a couple of other issues which are highly relevant, not just the tragic events regarding the 737 MAX, but it's also Boeing has been drawn into the trade conflict between Europe and the US and uh, the WTO ruling on state support for Airbus versus uh, Boeing. But also, uh, Boeing has been uh, part of the, the the sort of real challenge that uh, Donald Trump has faced over the last three years to 
re-energize the industrial base of the US economy, which has been something that he's spoken very strongly on the campaign trail. But he's going to need to remind the electorate leading into November next year as to whether he's managed to achieve that. And against the backdrop of a weak Boeing performance and a weaker manufacturing yeah. sector performance, that's going to be a hard thing to do. Francis, chuck in Boeing to the rest of the US economy. I know it's a big question, but Simon touches on something which is actually quite important because this is, of course, an election year, as well as an impeachment year, which we'll, we'll come mm. on to in a second. Yeah, um, yeah, we, we make the best planes, only apparently they kind of don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is not a kind of great message to the rest of the mm. world. Mm. So, um, yeah, and, and actually it, there's a, a little bit of, of that kind of general kind of message with the US economy. We make the best things, except that they don't. Which is part of the reason for the fight with Huawei. Um, Indi in so indeed. On. Now, now that that we haven't heard, and I mean noise from that for a few weeks, but you can't help feeling that that is that is just continuing because nothing really about the fundamental um, claims of either side has been decided. No, absolutely, and I think this is going to rumble on. Yeah, um, and I think it's going to get tougher. I think we're not going to just going to see attacks like this on Chinese companies, but I think we're also going to see similar attacks on European companies too. So, Craig, uh, let's bring you into the trade war, which is you know hot and cold every day it seems between the US and China. Um, w any solution to it, or is it something that we have to live with every day? Because the markets certainly do, don't they? Well, I mean, I've got to be honest, the, the, the chance of a comprehensive deal seem close to zero now. Yeah. It's taken this long to get a phase one agreement. And it's funny, we've seen a bit of a boost for the markets on the back of, uh, of this agreement. But I love the fact that they added the kind of terminology of it just needs a little bit of scrubbing. Uh, in other words, it's kind of there. It's not ready for a signature yet. But I mean, wasn't it kind of there in October when Donald Trump first said that the deal had been agreed and two months later we've got mm. something that just needs to be scrubbed up? It does seem that there's desire on all sides to, uh, to get this over the line and to get something over the line ahead of the presidential election. But there's a, diff there's, there's, there's a big difference between the willingness to do so uh, and the ability to do so because the ability relies on, on compromise. Uh, and clearly there's red lines which both sides are struggling to uh, cross. So basically we're in a situation where by phase one, if we do get signatures on that agreement, I feel that this is as far as it goes. And I think we go into the presidential election, Trump probably wins at this point, it seems. Um, although I'd be really intrigued to see what a runoff between Trump and Bloomberg would be like. Uh, and I think Trump then turns his attention to Europe because I think it's probably a much easier target for him in his second term. Simon, how does this fit into the narrative of the, the normal China thing that we all hear about? You know, eventually everything's moving eastwards, as it were, well, at well, least from, fr fr from us. Does this, does this help it? Does this hinder it? Does it accelerate it? Does it make it more complicated? Uh, the... Economic Cold War, which is effectively what we must label this, because I think it's it's a battle between the two preeminent economic powers of the world. You, you could perhaps include the European Union in there as well, but certainly between the US and China on who writes the rules for commerce, social rules, political rules for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So any investor who's... Uh, sat there thinking, actually, this is going to go away with a flick of a pen. It really is not seeing this in its correct context, uh, its correct historical context. And therefore, clients we speak to say, look, what we want to understand in this context is whether a economic cold war will turn into an economic hot war at any point. And you see about the proxy relationships that China has developed as part of its uh, Silk Road initiatives with countries in Southeast Asia into uh, Eastern Europe. And you wonder whether those relationships will be the things the US administration will challenge. And that may spike 
the kind of policy mistake that could really disrupt the global economy against the backdrop of constant noise around the battle for hegemony between uh, China and the US. On the US theme, Francis, if we may, take us through the United States and Russia and how that um, developed during 2019. It, it sounded very fractious indeed. Yes, I mean, all this idea that um, that Trump was kind of sort of um, hand in hand with Putin seems to have rather died, doesn't mm, it? Um, mm. The relationship is very un- mm, standoffish now. Um, yes, it's interesting why. I, I actually think, maybe this is a con- contrarian view, but I actually think that oil has a lot to do with this. Um, Russia is a major oil producer. Of course. Uh, okay. And, and, and also um, yeah, very, very keen to, to keep that going. L- let's return to the United States, Simon, if we may. The markets um, di- have not reacted, as I understand, at all to the, the threat of impeachment for President Trump, have they? Um, this is because what? Because they don't think it'll happen. Well, the market performance in 2019, certainly if we look at the equity market, indeed the bond market, the the, the response has been driven by the actions of the Federal Reserve, not the White House. And, and I think most investors have concluded that um, they're guessing in terms of the next move, both from the president and indeed from uh, the impeachment process. The only thing I think we could be reasonably confident on is that the Senate will block any impeachment process and therefore it actually won't go full term as it were and and therefore i think uh, the president is um is is safe into sort of re-election uh, the re-election period but from the perspective of the the markets uh, and and risk assets they've looked at the federal reserve cutting interest rates three times this year with a plateauing uh, interest rate picture into 2020 and concluding that that is enough for them to reallocate towards risk and away from uh, you know away from the fears that really stalked the market in the first half of 2019. Craig you feel you, you've often expressed the fact that the markets have stepped away from this and thought you know well until something actually happens then there is no point in worrying about it you still feel that do you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what Sam has just alluded to there, this has to get through the Senate for it to be taken seriously. Uh, And it's not like we're talking about the risk of this passing through the Senate, like this is going to be a close vote. This is a Republican-controlled Senate and two-thirds needs to support impeachment. For that to happen, we need something needs to appear over the next four weeks that shows there's, there's evidence there that it cannot be questioned. And at that point, you're going to have, you'd have Republican senators uh, saying, well, we, we actually can't now reject this because the electorate will blame us. That's if that was going to appear, I think that would have appeared already. So I think what we've got to look at here is why we're we going through this process at all. If if this is uh, if this has no chance of passing the Senate, and which is why the markets are ignoring it. And the, the simple fact of the matter is, this is going into an election year, and you know that politics is going to be played as it is. Uh, and the Democrats are using this, I think, as probably a tool uh, in which to create question marks uh, in the minds of uh, of the electorate. And the the problem that they're going to face is that, if anything, it's going to embolden Trump supporters, I think, and may well back, backfire. Um, but I think they're looking at the, 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 the what Hillary Clinton went through, for example, with the emails, and just those few question marks, you wonder how many votes that cost her, because in such a tight race, that could have proven pivotal in putting Trump into the White House. So maybe this is their attempt to try and return the favour. I just don't think it's going to be very successful. All right, so we've had a massive election here, a huge change of the political landscape. Simon, what's it mean? It means a degree of political certainty that seemed somewhat unlikely for most of the last three and a half years. Um, The scale of the electoral victory means that Boris Johnson is likely safe in Downing Street for uh, a minimum of five years. Um, In that environment, 
businesses can plan with a degree more certainty, but not complete certainty. There is there are significant structural problems with the UK economy, low low productivity, uh, two structural deficits on both the trade side and the, the fiscal side to try and manage, and of course the overhang of Brexit phase two negotiations, which will be difficult and will define what the long-term relationship and the long-term economic impact will be. So far from out of woods, but for most investors, the economic risk or the risk factor, the political risk factor in the UK has dialed down as a result of the election. Francis, do you concur with a bit of um, certainty and, 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 and that certainty helping things generally? Yeah, I think the, the fact that there's, we now have um, um, a stable government um, and will have for the next five years, as Simon was saying, um, does create some certainty. But I don't think we should underestimate the turbulence to come. Nonetheless, I mean, the government may, may be stable, but the the country very much isn't. Okay, um, yeah, that's that, yeah, a very good point. I, I mean, we, we, we were talking, um, it may have been with you, I can't really remember, but it didn't matter, um, on the programme a couple of weeks ago about the survey coming out saying there are a, a number of very, very disaffected people of a, a youngish age who were voting. They didn't have a massive um, influence on the election as it happens, but you can't help thinking every disparity that you've just been talking about is going to be important. Absolutely. I mean, I've been quite struck, actually, by the level of anger among young people, particularly, about mm. the result of the election, um, and some of the nastiest, nasty comments there have been towards older people and towards people they see, uh, see as having, shall we say, betrayed them, even among their own number. Oh, dear. <laughs> that sounds very depressing. Um, yeah. Craig, as, as a young person, do you, do you share that view? Youngish. Uh, Youngish, yeah, yeah, okay. The divisiveness in this country over the past uh, three or four years has got to quite extreme levels, let's face it. Uh, Francis just alluded to the, 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 the divide between the young and the older. There's, there's the North versus the South, as there always is. There's the Remain versus Brexit, Conservative versus Labour. The list can go on and on and on. Uh, the, it's become increasingly divisive. And I think this is ultimately, when we're looking back in, in five years, one of the real things that we have to judge Boris Johnson on is going to be, has he brought this country back together to a place where we were prior to 2015, prior to the financial crisis, arguably, whereby um, everything's looking a little bit brighter because... If not, then you have to say that he's failed in many aspects because he's basically, I think he later said this himself, he's borrowed votes uh, in some of these le labor yeah, traditional labour yeah. seats. And he now has to repay that faith. And so if, if we can see some real investment in these areas that have, have, uh, have felt left behind uh, by repeated conservative governments, then you may start to see that divide start to disappear. It's never going to completely disappear, let's face it. There's always okay. been divides. Uh, but uh, it has become increasingly fierce over the course, especially over the last 12 months. Uh, and I think a lot now has to be done. And the, the responsibility very much lies with Boris Johnson and the Conservative majority. Okay, Francis, Simon, Craig, thank you very much indeed. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.